that just seemed like the perfect song for a podcast about silent films. No more words. You're so clever. Hey, whatever happened to Berlin? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they were on that... Uh, Remember that show? I think that it was VH1 VH1 show? show where they reunited bands. I yeah. think they got them back together for a minute or two. They did, yeah. So anyway, we give them some love here. It's Berlin and No More Words to open up the Fright Club podcast. Welcome. I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf, and we're from madwolf.com. And today it's all about the silent horror film. So as you can guess, we're going to go back. We're going to go way back to, uh, to some classics, but some good ones. Uh, but first we want to uh, do a little, little bit of housekeeping from last week and even a, a few weeks before that. Yeah, well, so last week we did Cronenberg, um, which we've been talking about doing forever and ever, sort of every so often we'll do a whole podcast about one filmmaker, and so last week is Cronenberg, and we got some complaints, and I knew that we would, um, and I knew one would be from our friend Bridget Oliver, who runs the Columbus Horror Society. Um, she loves Oliver Reed. God bless her. I'm sure she and her therapist talk about that a lot. <laughs> we will just say she loves Oliver Reed and leave it at that. So she was sorry not to see The Brood on there, and... Uh, and it's a great movie. That's one of the things that we mentioned, is that there were only three movies that couldn't make the list, and they couldn't make the list. That, but um, So The Brood didn't make it. And I got some people, thank you for the folks that had my back about The Fly, because even you admit now it should have been on there. Yeah, it should have been there instead of The Dead Zone. It's true. And I think I said uh, last week, I rewrote that top five list more than, I think, all other podcasts combined. I just kept, the only one I knew wouldn't be on there is Rabbit. Everything else should have been on there, and I felt like fuzzy math to seven was going to be so anyway. I admit it. The Fly should have been on there instead of The Dead Zone. Okay, so thank you for the love for Brundle Fly. It, uh, it definitely <laughs> deserves it. Still love that movie. And we want to say thank you to a new listener, Michael. Uh, he chimed in on our, on our Facebook page, uh, Mad Wolf Columbus. On, face, on Facebook, saying that he just listened to the uh, podcast on documentaries. Right, and uh, and uh, one of the movies that we talked about on that was, uh, it's, a, it's an old film called Titty Cut Follies that uh, we were not able to get a hold of, and he, he offered to lend it to us. He, you know what he also said? He said that the podcast got him back into horror. How lovely is that? Nice. We're well, so thank glad. You. Thank you. Thank you for that, and hope that we will see you. Hopefully you can come out uh, this Wednesday night, January the 13th, is going to be our next Fright Club live event as we are going to show uh, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and we're going to record our podcast live talking about our favorite female vampire movies. So I don't know if we caught where Michael is. Yeah, he's, he's in Columbus. He okay, mm-hmm. so, so come yeah, out. Come uh, on, and if you lend us the movie, i got a Fright Club t-shirt in it for you, Michael. Hey, hey. It's what every stylish man is wearing this winter. Uh, so anyway, but thank you for that. Always appreciate that uh, that feedback. And I actually, I think I have to admit, <laughs> it turns out that it is impossible to count down the five best female vampire movies without some amount of girl on girl action. So for those you had of you, to know that for before those... you even started. No, seriously. No. You had to know true. to find to find five that didn't to go there. There are literally would be a hundreds. Tough... There are multiple hundreds of female vampire movies and maybe three without girl on girl action. <laughs> So uh, we will get to all of those and have fun doing it uh, this coming Wednesday night, uh, recording it live, which is, you know, when we first started doing that, recording them live, it, it was a little rough at first, but I think we've got it figured out now. Everybody uh, is really great about chiming in. Yeah. We, we kind of know, you know, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. Yep. And they're, they're a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to it, especially with this topic and this movie. Yeah, it's such because, a gorgeous yeah. movie. I'm so excited to see it again on the big screen because yeah, it's, it's really, just beautiful. really going to be a good one. So come out if you can again. That's this Wednesday night at the Gateway. All right, so we're moving ahead uh, to No More Words and going back to the best silent horror films. And uh, these are classics that have stood the test of time. In fact, some 
have been uh, since their release have been lost and found and restored to to just mm-hmm. new beauty mm-hmm. and uh, remade. A lot remade, of them are oh, remakes, yeah, but in various uh, various forms. Uh, but we'll start back in 1927, and this is one by uh, famous, infamous director Todd Browning called "The Unknown." And Todd Browning, uh, you may know, I guess most notable for Freaks. Well, or Dracula. He did the Bela Lugosi Dracula, which probably what most people know about. But, yeah. but uh, the, what, I mean, this particular film, The Unknown, is set in a, in a circus sideshow. So right there you go, Todd Browning, Sideshow Freaks, we are in. <laughs> you know, and it's Lon Chaney who is in, I mean, you could do just Lon Chaney horror silent movies. This guy, oh my God, what a beast he was. And um, and in this particular movie, he plays uh, the amazing Alonzo, the armless, you know, sideshow freak. He shoots guns, he throws knives at his uh, at his partner, you know. And this is one of the things I hate about about silent movies is that they always give their characters these really weird names you don't know how to pronounce and you never hear them pronounce. So I'm going to call her Nanon. I don't know how you pronounce it, N A N O N. But um, she's played by Joan Crawford, pre wire hanger, and and you know what? Actually, Joan Crawford has said that. Working with Lon Chaney really taught her how to be an actress and not just someone who was standing in front of a camera. Interesting. Because, well, yeah, he was, you know, he was magnificent. And, and you know, and we'll talk about that more later. But the, the lengths that he went to 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 make his physical character more realistic. One of the things in this particular film that's fascinating is uh, he and Todd Browning and a third man, an actual armless circus performer, the the lengths they went to to use... You know, Chaney's torso and the circus performer's legs. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Because it really does look like it's all Lon Chaney. But you're like, he can play the guitar with right. his bare feet. That's when amazing. On the when, scenes when he's playing uh, the fiddle or when he's smoking, that is uh, the, the stand-in, mm-hmm. obviously. But, you know, for that time, it's a pretty good uh, effect. Yeah, very, very. Um, and, the, you know, the story is so weird. It's it's great. So, so Armless Alonzo is in love with Nanon, and Nanon, who's beautiful, uh, she hates being groped by men's hands. So even though the uh, the circus strongman is in love with Nanon, she's not interested because he has arms and hands. And so Alonzo is just waiting for her to realize, well, obviously the only man for me is the armless one, but ho-ho, he's not armless. <laughs> he's actually a, a thief who travels with the circus and gets away with the crimes that he does because everybody thinks that he's armless because he keeps his arms bound. And you were saying it's it's a little like it's a little like bad Santa. <laughs> I couldn't help but think, oh, he's in disguise. He's got a little guy working for him, and they're you know on the lamb from the law. Yeah, I thought bad Santa. Yeah, they were just with a lot less sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's a weird, weird well, story. Well, you know, I mean, in that, that's, you know what, that's not a big giveaway. What, you know, and it's funny, the idea that I'm spoiling movies that came out in 1927. But, I mean, there is, uh, I mean, the movie just gets weirder and weirder as it goes along. And and, and it's, it's the kind of thing where, it, you know, it goes places. And a lot of these movies do that no film today would go. No film today would go. And it actually builds this incredibly weird tension um, with these sort of these horses and this this other you know circus trick that they're going to try out, it right. really builds this very. But the whole film has this seediness about it that is very Todd Browning circus area. I mean, it's just it's just a weirdly fascinating film. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that from 1927 on to about 1973, a lot of the copies of this film existed only on the black market. They they were, they were lost, but in 73, they found um, a copy of it among other miscellaneous cans of film that were marked unknown. 
uh, and then they they had it again uh, some actual copies to to actually uh, put out there. But yeah, it was for many years it was awful hard to find. Uh, like the Titicut Follies. Right. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, except on the black market. So, yeah, it's talk about unknown. It really was unknown. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's such a weird movie. It's a great movie. And it's just, and a lot of the movies on this list are going to feel, you know, sort of um, almost tame comparatively because well, yeah. they fit a formula that you expect. And this one, I'm going to tell you, just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a 1927 at number five, Joan Crawford and Lon Chaney. In the unknown. And moving up to number four, one that everybody knows and one that, boy, scared the the pants off a lot of people in 1925, and that's Phantom of the Opera. And, of course, since then it's been made. uh, It started out as a a, a serial graphic novel from 1909 and 1910, and then it became the movie, which changed the ending a pretty good bit. And then, of course, it's been the uh, movies and the uh, very lavish Broadway play. But you go back to the the movie, and the biggest thing, really, I mean, the, the movie does a lot of things right, but the biggest thing is the the makeup that Lon Chaney devised for himself and throughout the production of the movie kept hidden. You know, went to great lengths to keep it hidden from the other actors so he'd get that incredible uh, reaction, which in the unmasking scene, um, legend has it that that is the first time the actress saw it and, and her reaction is real. Because it's fearsome. It is. You know, and of course, Lon Chaney again, and also doing something, you know, sort of uh, weird and sort of, you know, difficult and painful to his own physical being. You know, uh, you know, they say that he used some toothpicks and he used a lot of, you know, it was a painful apparatus to make his face do what it does in this and this and it's you know they they describe it early on they tell you oh it's he's just got a skeletal face and mm-hmm. oh and so it's ghastly and grisly and they build up all of this you know anticipation and then when you see it it is it it lives up to it and and uh, it's just amazing it's just amazing what he was able to capture and he did that on his own and he also he's uncredited but he co-directed the film yeah and one of the other interesting notes about Lon Chaney is that he is his parents were both deaf mutes so he did a lot of communicating anyway with his hands and with his body. And it's, it's interesting to note how that would aid his performance in movies such as this. And uh, he, did, he did, did his own makeup and took great pride in the fact that it scared people. But there's also, if you watch it, there's, there's a lot of uh, style to the direction. Like when he's, when he's uh, perched high on the, uh, on the building and he's overhearing the conversation and finds out that she... Uh, Christine is, you know, double-crossing him. The way the, the wind plays with his capes and his robes, it's so, it's so majestic and uh, a little frightening to when it goes with that face, you know. Uh, it's, uh, whether he directed that part or, or not, it's, it's really done in such a, such a majestic way now, but you can see back then, be very, very frightening, especially when those scenes, you know, down in the in the caverns beneath yeah. the opera, and he's he's devising these uh, torture chambers to uh, trap her lover mm-hmm. and get his revenge and all that, and that's it's and the and the people coming after him with the pitchforks and the torches. Uh, it's it's very <laughs> it's very exciting, and the, the only weird thing about it. The score at certain times to me doesn't quite fit. It gets a little happy. Yeah, it's so upbeat. Uh, it gets a, it's so upbeat at times. You're like, Oof. yeah. Sometimes it doesn't, but other times it, it gets a little happy uh, for what's going on. But uh, but honestly, but there, there's a part of it, you know, the which may be one of the most um, famous, you know, parts of a score in yeah. history. Oh, that definitely works. But there are just other times that it gets a little happy. But that's that's, that's nitpicking. But um, they definitely um, in the movie. 
change the, the ending. The ending of the movie with uh, them taking off. She, he takes Christine off in the carriage, and they're yeah. running through the, the streets, and then she uh, ends, ends up jumping out of the carriage. That That's not in the book or the serial at all. It has a much tamer T- uh, tamer ending to it, but uh, it works in the movie with the mob coming after him, and then of course his face is you know fully fully seen by everyone, and it's it's really um, it it holds up in in a way after all these years. Yeah, I have to say, um, especially in comparison with the other films on this list, I find the story you know so much. So many of Victor Hugo's novels were turned into uh, silent horror films, and Victor Hugo has such a, a you know proletariat you know up with people yeah. kind of a stance that this movie. I don't know that it did when I saw it the first time, but when I, you know, in comparison with the rest of these films, it feels so, such a cautionary tale about a woman who dares to prefer a career over marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I kind of want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. That's that's a point well taken. Uh, it's interesting, too, that uh, the distinctive bed uh, from this movie, the Phantom's Bed, that was reused in the Gloria Swanson movie, Sunset Boulevard. Ooh. Isn't that wild? That's a good piece of yeah. trivia. And because her, and there are certain close-ups where her face in that movie looks a little fan, you know, when she's ready for her close-up <laughs> at the end there. Yikes. But yeah, I found that interesting. And also, apparently, they made, they went back, this film was so successful, they went back and, and tried to do or did do a, a sound version of the movie in 1930, and it grossed another million dollars. Wow. But apparently since then, that print has been totally lost. Hmm. It's considered... It's considered lots. So the uh, the original 1925 silent version is the one we're talking about here, uh, the classic Phantom of the Opera, and that's at number four on our list of the best silent horror movies. And we'll go up to number three, and this one is interesting for a lot of reasons, not only on its own merit, but what it, uh, what it served as inspiration for. And that is from 1928, it's The Man Who Laughs. So this isn't this is a Victor Hugo novel and this is one of my favorites. I love this movie because so Victor Hugo he you know he does that you know he makes the sort of the grotesque and the you know poverty stricken he finds uh, you know beauty and splendor in that the and miserable a, the mis right <laughs> and then and then in the you know the beauty and and moneyed folk that's where he finds monstrosity and and, and, and you know Quasimodo and and you know and Le Mis and and this this one in particular. Which is probably his least well-known uh, cinematic adaptation. And, uh, you know, it's about Gwynplaine, this poor little boy who the king has disfigured um, as punishment for his the, the boy's father's misdeeds. So he has him disfigured so that he will look like he's laughing, laughing at what a fool his father is. And so... He really has no choice but to sort of join a sideshow. Uh, he, he stumbles across in the woods a blind baby girl, and the two of them are saved by this carny who, who you know, raises them as his own, as brother and sister, and, and they have the, you know. And um, it's so sad, and they, they finally go back, and, and they find out, they uncover that he, Gwynplaine, is actually heir to, uh, you know, his noble father's fortune. So there's a woman who wrongly has that. And, and it, there's this weird, seedy sexuality with this woman, which I think is really fascinating given the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, but more than anything, this is such a tragic, sad just like they miss. Just sad. It's just sad. <laughs> yeah. This miserable sad story. That's and what Hugo did right, best, right? That's right. But it's so beautifully filmed. And Conrad Veidt, who also is in another film we're going to talk about today, his performance is magnificent. But I think the thing that stands out at this point, which I'm sure you're going to talk about for a second, is the look of Gwynplaine. Yeah. Yeah. You really only have to watch just a few seconds of the movie or any scene from it, and you'll immediately think of the Joker. 
and so did Bob Kane. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think he's been pretty open about the fact that he got the inspiration for the Joker character from this movie. Yeah. Well, although, I mean, the just the look of him, I mean, the character himself, Gwen Plain, is just, he's a sweetheart. He's a, he's a sweet, no, tragic look. character. Yes, but yeah, look. this is absolutely the look of the Joker. There's no question about it. Yeah, and uh, also, you, you bring up Lon Chaney. Apparently, he was the first choice play oh. Gwen Plain. But, and there have been rumors over the years that he... He was he started it and then walked off the set, but apparently those are are, are not true. Mm. Depending on what legend you uh, you uh, listen to, but uh, he was the first choice, but he was under contract to another studio at that time because remember back then all they the actors they, they owned, owned you. you, yeah. So he couldn't do it, uh, but uh, but you're right about Conrad Vite, uh, and he had to suffer much like Lon Chaney mm-hmm. to get this look. He it was I guess it was a set of dentures that he had to wear, and they had metal hooks that pulled back the corners of his mouth. So obviously, he could not speak when the dentures were in. Well, silent movie, okay. But uh, he had to wear those through almost the entire production. You Just, just hearing that, that well, had to be painful. Well, you know, and, and you watch, and almost any scene, that he, and it really works well for the character, almost every scene that he's in, he's got this huge smile, and if you look at his eyes, it looks like he's about to cry. Every yeah. single time, it looks like he's about to cry, and maybe he was. Yeah. Maybe it's like, maybe. you know, the, the pain of it. Um, you know, and, it, and it's funny, because the, the film ends on... Not, I wouldn't say a happy note, but a much less somber note than the novel. Oh, my God. Just like everything else that Victor Hugo writes, the novel just makes you want to throw yourself off a cliff. So if, if, you've, if you've by chance read the novel and don't want to sit through the movie, just, just know it's, it's, a little, it's a little nicer. Yeah, and it's interesting. We talked about, uh, I think it was when we had the podcast on Takashi Miike. And remember, we talked about the Glasgow smile. Yeah. And this is yes. the same type yeah, of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Organized crime gangs would carve their victims' faces as a message, and that's what it's come to be known as, the Glasgow smile or the Chelsea smile. And you can take that all the way back to this. He's doing it, uh, he got it done to him as a, as a punishment, right. as a, to send a message. And it's funny that you bring that up because, because uh, the, the look that that gave him in this particular film became, obviously, the look for the Joker over the years. However, the Heath Ledger Joker is much closer to the Itchy the Killer version, where yeah. his face had just been carved, and then, in the, in the case of Heath Ledger, um, scar tissue closed, and in the yep. case of Itchy the Killer, he closed it with, like, earrings. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's just a cool, weird grotesque sort of image. Yeah, so you can see how inspiration comes so, so far back. This was directed by Paul Lenny, who was a German expressionist, and it's interesting because uh, at about this time, a lot of German filmmakers were getting ready to leave Germany, were between world wars, and uh, and German expressionism really, uh, really took a big leap forward in silent films, horror films in particular, and we're going to see that especially in the next in the next film. Yeah, so number three, 1928, The Man Who Laughs, and number two, uh, going back, this is the oldest one on our list, all the way back to 1920, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Woo! Oh my God, who doesn't love this movie? <laughs> now, is this true? Is this, from your point of view, I found a lot of sources that said this is many times considered to be the first, quote, horror movie ever made. Yes. Well, because, you know, Edison's Edison's first film was Frankenstein. So a lot of people would point to that. That was first. His The first film that, that Edison made, you know, sort of as an example of what you can do with film, it was a very short version of Frankenstein. So some people would point to that. But this okay. would be the first theatrical release, I think, the first theatrically released 
horror movie. And it is a horror movie. It's not like some of these, you know, uh, you know, The Man Who Laughs, for example, you could call just sort of a, a melodrama. There, there's no question that this one is a horror movie. And it has been everything about it. It's mostly remember, remembered because of the very distinctive really dreamy look of it. It is yeah. gorgeous. It's so stunning and weird to watch and it and it creates an atmosphere immediately of just being completely off kilter. And it's perfect for the the storyline that is that it's it's going to put forth, but there's also a framing device where uh, you open with a man who's sitting at an asylum uh, outdoors on a on a park bench and he's telling the story basically of how his beloved came to be insane and came to be institutionalized and the the framing device sorry they return to that at the end and you realize something different is happening and that particular framing device has been used hundreds of times ever since then and clearly this was the first time that that happened either there are so many things about this movie that became just foundational for the genre that it's, it's really hard to overstate this movie's impact yeah, and it, back when it came out, it had an, an incredible impact. It played at one specific theater in Paris for seven years straight. Wow, <laughs> that's quite an engagement. Yeah, and it made such a such a a huge uh, contribution and an and an impression. And you might know some people might know it was just a year ago or two years ago now, uh, twenty fourteen. They restored it to just you can't believe the way it looked. I mean, it, it looked great yeah. then. But if you can find uh, someplace showing the restoration from 2014, incredible restoration. It's just, oh my God, what a gorgeous, weird-looking, amazingly atmospheric movie. You know, the the sets and the backdrops. And because the film, well, if you're, if you're not familiar, you know, a young couple, they go to a, a fair and they come across this somnambulist, this hypnotist and his somnambulist, which is the guy who walks in his sleep. I love that that word, though. <laughs> and Cesar. So Dr. Caligari and Cesar. Cesar is played by Conrad Veidt again. And, um, you know, uh, then at the same time, all these murders are committed around town. And it's always people who have, you know, in some way slighted Dr. Caligari. Gari. Uh, it's very weird, but the idea of this sleepwalker and and the the backdrops and sort of the um, overall tone of insanity fits so perfectly with these shadowy, um, very awkward, angled, spirally kind of backdrops. I mean, the it just it looks like no other movie. And then the makeup. Which in a silent film is usually quite exaggerated, but the makeup matches the backdrop so well. It really feels like you're inside a nightmare. Well, it's it's interesting you bring up the shadows because apparently the sets were made entirely out of paper, and then they painted the shadows on the wall. Wow! Because, and it, it really does. It makes a, a, a stunning a stunning effect with just paper and the paint. And it looks many times it looks like almost like a madhouse. Yes, you know, which, is yeah. which is perfect. Which is perfect. Um, the director is Conrad Vine, who is another German expression, uh, expressionist. But I think, you know, the movie, um, so it, it was produced post-World War One, pre-World War II. It was written by two Germans who had served in World War One as their reaction, basically, to what they believed was the German population's pathological need to do the will of a lunatic uh, authority figure mm -hmm. and considering where this film is placed in history i think that that gives the movie an incredibly powerful super creepy impact at it least does. for me because you can imagine how that message was lost on a lot of people that, oh, yeah. that watched it but yeah. brilliant yeah such a brilliant way to express that and uh rob zombie fans may know and we've talked about rob zombie many times but uh, he did the, his music video for his song living dead girl mm. is, a, is a direct homage to this movie 
So, and, and we've given props a lot to Rob, Rob Zombie for his respect for these old horror movies. Oh, absolutely. So whether yeah, no we question. like or love his movies. Well, you know, he, hell, he really... his band was named after the first zombie film, <laughs> right. right? The Bela Lugosi White Zombie. Yeah, so, uh, so we give him credit for that. So you might, if you want to look up uh, Rob Zombie's Living Dead Girl, that video is very much based on this movie. And that is number two. You know, before we get to number one, I yeah. think we ought to just shout out real quick. It was Vanessa, our Fright Club fan, Vanessa, who gave us the idea to do this. And thank you for that, because this is this was fun to put together. Really I enjoyed was. this, yeah. I'll be honest. At first, I thought, eh. But it's, it's turned out to mm-hmm. be, yeah, you, you won me over, there Vanessa. Are so, so nice, many. Nice there are idea. so many. I mean, there are so many that we, we just didn't include because there really are so many great ones. And, and, and I encourage you, just look into it, you know, just, you know, just Google it. Yeah. But one of the ones that I thought we were going to get stuck with, I want to bring up, is Haxon. I was like, because it was <laughs> when I was trying off the top of my head, come up with five. Haxon is a, is a silent movie. It's like, it's almost like a edutainment about witchcraft throughout the ages, and it is unwatchable. <laughs> it is, and I remember just trying to make myself sit through it, and I have tried over the years to make myself sit through it, and I cannot do it. And then I remembered like how many Lon Chaney movies there were, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not watching this. <laughs> <laughs> all right, duly noted. But yeah, Vanessa, thanks for the idea, and by all means, Fright Clubbers, if you have a, an, an idea, let us know uh, on Twitter, at Mad Wolf. We'd love to uh, see what you think we should do a podcast about, and and, or tell us at the live event, although yeah, you might want to tell George, because sometimes I forget what happens at the live <laughs> event, because sometimes Bridget buys me a lot of beers. Sometimes. All right, number <laughs> one, you probably guessed, from 1922, the original Nosferatu. And you can hear that music right there. Da, da, that really sets the tone for the classic Dracula tale. Right, and so Murnau, the director of this one, another German. I mean, what an incredibly right time for German filmmakers in this genre. Ooh, ooh. Holy cow. You're not a kid. And, uh, and obviously, clearly, originally he just wanted to do the first cinematic adapta- adaptation of Dracula, and, uh, and uh, um, Stoker's wife, Widow, was still alive and wouldn't give him the rights. So, in fact, there was a long period where you couldn't watch this movie because he, he made it anyway, and it was criminally close. Yeah, to- but he, he apparently he changed the endings. He thought that'd be enough. He changed the names as well. But- yeah, and he changed the ending. Thought that'd be enough. Like, oh, they're not the same. It's yeah. like Vanilla Ice and that Queen song. Right. <laughs> See? Dun, 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 dun. It's different right there. No, it's really not. No. So, <laughs> it took a long time before you could see the film again after it was first released, but what a masterpiece this yeah. is. And it's it's many of the city, you know, uh, Orlock, uh, Max Schreck, who who played, and in so incredibly the character of Nosferatu. He's only seen he less than ten minutes. Wow, he's on film for wow. less than ten minutes. But man, what an impact does that make? Well, and so not just his performance, although his performance is spot on perfection. This is, in my uh, in my opinion, the greatest vampire ever. Uh, Put on film. He is so he is so creepy and wonderful, and 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 of course, part of it is the performance. Part of it is the direction, and so much of it is the look. Yeah, the look is incredible. I remember when um, the Twilight movies came out. Remember, and everybody was about, "Are you Team Edward or Team that other guy?" I can't remember Jacob. his name. Yeah, and you so wanted a T-shirt that said Team Orlock. I really on it. did. We were looking, and then for a minute, we thought, "Hey, we should design our own." And then uh, <laughs> you wanted that so bad, and that would have been just. Perfect. It would have yeah, been. Yeah, because this is the guy. Because of all the, of any horror movie t-shirts that I have, I have probably more Max Shrek t-shirts than everything else combined. Because I love him, because he's awesome. And I'm not the only one who thinks that, obviously, but like uh, Salem's Lot, clearly that vampire is patterned off this. Quite obviously, uh, what we do in the shadow, so that was less of a ripoff. That was, but then, you know... Um, well, they made that entire Shadow of the Vampire. And then, and then in 1979, Warner Herzog remade Nosferatu. Right. Um, and so, and, and uh, with the same look and the same you know everything and but one of the things that i love about about this 
path that the vampire took is that it was it was and it was kind of set among the idea of the black plague and so it was it was um rancid it was it was vermin like and that's what the vampire was it was it was death comes to you in this vermin like form as opposed to what the majority of all vampire movies are which is death comes to you via seduction yes there is something you know beautiful and and hypnotic and and carnal about it where in this case no it's he's like he looks like a naked mole rat <laughs> that's right <laughs> and um it's it's funny too because after all this time apparently Almost all of the exteriors from the movie are still intact in the cities where it was filmed. Ooh. Wismar and Lübeck, uh, if I'm pronouncing those correctly, in Germany. So yeah, that would be that would be a tourist destination, yeah, it would. wouldn't it? <laughs> and it's we talked about Shadow of the Vampire. That's the one where um, Willem Dafoe uh, plays uh, Max Schreck, the actor. And the whole legend is is he really oh, actually a vampire? And uh, it's it's a real. And uh, John Malkovich is. Um, Worn out. Worn out, yeah. It's a great movie and a great performance. It's a great movie. Yeah, it really is. And then another pop culture reference in the original Batman movie, the original Tim Burton Batman, uh, or, or was it the first one or the second one? The second one. Christopher Walken's character, character is named Max is Shrek. Named Max Shrek. Yeah, so, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it has an incredible uh, pop culture, uh, has great legs in, in pop culture yeah. even for today. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, it's a must. Yes, it, really it is. is. It's, you know, and it's, it's again, it's the coolest looking movie. And what he does with shadows, what Murnau does with shadows, yes. you know, in, uh, in the Dracula movie that Francis Ford Coppola does, you know, he, I think, lovingly homages that as well. It's just, you know, the shadow is as much a character as the vampire it is, really which is, is so cool when you think about how old this film is and how they managed to do that. There are a lot of, of quick moments where you like, how did they, how did they do that at this, at this time period? Yeah. Yeah, incredible, incredible piece of filmmaking, and uh, number one on our list of the top silent horror movies. And yeah, once again, a good, a good category. This was good looking back into these. I discovered a lot of things I, I didn't know, and a new appreciation for a lot of these movies. Absolutely. So thanks again, Vanessa, for pointing that out to us. Thank you, and we'll hope to get some more ideas on Wednesday. We'll plug it again this coming Wednesday, January the thirteenth. We'll be out at the Gateway Film Center for Fright Club Live. We'll start with the happy hour as we always do, about 6.30 in the mm-hmm. Torpedo Room. And uh, then move in about 7.30, we'll record the podcast live. We'll run down uh, our favorites and your suggestions for our favorite female vampires uh, in the movies and then move right into a one that I'm sure is going to be on the list. That's not a too much of a spoiler. And that is the incredible movie from last year, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. So please come out. I think the following week we're going to do, because it will have the Oscar nominations, and there's always a great Skeletons in the Closet gr- cast from that. You can always do four or five movies of bad early horror films that these giant actors have gone to, so we'll do that next. Yeah, and by the way, very quickly, we have to say uh, a new horror movie came out this week. It's called The Forest. Uh, it's very bad, as you can tell from that big raspberry. Uh, very bad. And uh, But we did see, we just watched the trailer for the upcoming The Conjuring 2, and I'm speaking my interest. Yes, I, I, I'm with you. James Wan, the mm-hmm. same director is back, mm-hmm. and the same cast. It's another case. Well, it's 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 the yeah. same. It's uh, two, this, right. playing um, Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson playing uh, right. Ed and Diane Warren. Right. And it's another uh, 
file, another case file from, from the them. From the Warrens, so, right. Uh, can it top the original Conjuring? I doubt it. That's going to be tough. Love that movie. Love it. But uh, you might yeah, check it out if you haven't. The, the trailer for The Conjuring too, And just the trailer alone is better than The Forest. You can you can <laughs> skip that one. So uh, anyway, we look forward to seeing you hopefully Wednesday. If not, uh, keep the conversation rolling. As always, we're on Twitter at Mad Wolf. It's Mad Wolf Columbus on the Facebook page. And uh, of course, MadWolf.com. Uh, and until next week. I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf. This is the Fright Club Podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. And now we'll say it silently. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>